0: Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 3. And for the sake of the new folks, which we welcome, it's good to have you here this morning. But uh, just to kind of let you know what we're doing, we are studying the book of Galatians here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Uh, Instead of going through it verse by verse, which we've done in the past, we're going through it topically based on its main theme. The main theme of Galatians is liberty. Uh, the liberty or the freedom that is ours in christ and uh, the book divides itself into three main areas of liberty that paul brings up in this epistle liberty from lies liberty from law and then liberty for life and we have entered into the second major section of the book liberty from law which is a really liberty from religion and legalism as a way of being made righteous in god's eyes so under this heading Liberty from law, we've already looked at the testimony of Paul, the transgression of Peter, the treachery of false prophets, and now we are in that fourth division, the truth of the gospel. Now, just by way of quick review, as we said last time, the first century Greco-Roman world was loaded with paganism, as you can imagine, uh, which meant everywhere Paul went proclaiming the gospel, he was dealing with demonic lies of one form or another. And one of the lies that Paul dealt with in his missionary journeys was the lie of the Judaizers, which is legalism. As we have said, the Judaizers were going around telling people that salvation was a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. It was a mixture of law and grace. And the sad thing about it was that after Paul had spent a considerable amount of time in Galatia, teaching them the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Many churches of the Galatians were listening to the Judaizers. Therefore, Paul fires them off this letter in an attempt to reason with them, to challenge them, really, to think through the Judaizers' false doctrine, think about it to its logical conclusion, which is important. So let's read verses 5 to 9 once again, and we'll get into our study for this morning. Therefore... He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you... All the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, this morning, I'd like to focus our attention on two main thoughts in Paul's defense of the gospel. First of all, what exactly did Abraham believe that caused God to declare him righteous? Number one. Number two, how and when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? So the first one, what exactly did Abraham believe that caused God to declare him righteous? Pretty important topic, all right? Again, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Uh, The concept that Abraham was declared righteous, saved, by simply believing God is so important to our Christian faith that it's repeated four times in the New Testament. Three times by Paul, once by James and it begs the question what exactly did Abraham believe that caused God to declare him righteous well let's turn to Genesis 15 and try to find out because this is a pretty important topic and we want to make sure we get it right now we've already looked at Genesis 15 a couple weeks ago I think but um, I want to read it again Genesis 15 starting with verse 1 Now, after these things, that's the things of chapter 14. You're going to have to read that in your own. But after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his oldest servant. Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So once again, what did Abraham believe exactly that caused God to pronounce him righteous or saved? Uh, some say it was simply that Abraham had faith. It's all you need, they tell us. Some people are big on this. It's, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's only that you believe something. Well, that's pretty dumb. That can't be true. Faith has no power to save in and of itself. A person can believe a lie with all their heart and it still won't save them. The immediate context of Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6, suggests several possibilities with regard to Abraham's faith. Uh, Maybe it was he believed God's promise to be his shield and great reward. Maybe that's what he believed, that allowed God to declare him righteous. Or maybe it was what we read in verse 4, uh, that it was God's promise he would have an heir coming from his own body. Or maybe the promise of verse 5. Uh, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Or maybe he went back farther, all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 7, where God promised Abram and his descendants uh, to give them a land. We know it as the promised land. So which promise was it? Or was it all of them that Abraham believed that caused God to declare him righteous? Well, you know what? We don't have to guess. We can turn to Romans 4. Because Romans 4 is really an exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. We don't have to guess. We can see what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what Abraham believed that caused God to declare him righteous. And I'm just going to pick it up in verse 16. You can read the whole chapter on your own. In fact, we're going to start studying Romans 4 uh, here at Calvary on Wednesday night. So Romans 4, verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith, what's of faith? Salvation, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, she was ninety. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. So it seems that Paul is telling us that the belief that God could bring life out of death, or in other words, the belief in resurrection, is what allowed God to declare Abram or Abraham righteous. As one author said, in a sense, Abraham believed in the resurrection power of God. By this time, both Abraham and Sarah's bodies were, quote-unquote, dead to childbearing. But Abraham believed that out of death, God could bring life, end quote. So many commentators hold to the interpretation that what saved Abraham was his belief that God could raise the dead. And I've heard that from several good commentators. What saved him was he believed that God could raise the dead. Okay, great, but just the belief that God can raise the dead in general? I mean, is that all that's needed for a person to be saved? As we read our Bibles, that there are several examples of God raising the dead in both the Old and the New Testaments. Examples where God brought somebody dead back to life. I mean, does faith that God has the power to bring dead people back to life, does that automatically save us? No. It isn't the general belief in resurrection that saves a person. It is the belief in a specific Resurrection that saves us. Romans 10, verse 9. Paul said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Guys, there's only one resurrection that we can put faith in that will save us. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul went on to say in Romans 4, verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake, for Abraham's sake alone. That it, salvation, was imparted to him, but also, or imputed to him, I should say, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. Now at this point you might be thinking, well, okay, but how does that work with Abraham? I mean, he didn't know about Jesus, or did he? Or did he? Didn't Jesus say to the Pharisees in John eight fifty six, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad? So what did Abraham believe? That allowed God to declare him righteous? Guys, he believed the same thing that saves all of us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how did Abraham know the gospel? That's easy because in Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul tells us that God preached it to him. Let me read verse 8 again. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I'm quoting out of Genesis, which is the fuller statement. That in you, Genesis 12, 3, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, God said to Abraham back then, we know him as Abraham. Now, guys, there are those who point out that all Paul is really saying here in Galatians 3.8 is that God preached one aspect of the gospel to Abraham, that through his descendant, Messiah, all the nations of the world would someday be blessed. How? Because Messiah would be a savior to all mankind, not just the Jewish people. And listen, if Galatians 3.8 was the only statement on the subject we had in the Bible, I'd be inclined to agree with them, that that's all that God was saying, that he was just teaching or preaching one aspect of the gospel to Abraham, that in him, that is in his seed, Messiah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I'd agree with that if that was the only place in the Bible that mentions that, Galatians 3.8. It's just that there are other passages that indicate Abraham knew more about the gospel than people give him credit for. Turn to Genesis 22. By the time we're done with Genesis 22, you're going to see Abraham knew he was acting out gospel prophecy. Let's pick it up in verse 1, Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. Well, that's interesting. Abraham had another son, an older son named Ishmael. But God does, Ishmael was a work of the flesh. And God doesn't acknowledge the works of our flesh. He only acknowledges those things we do for him in the spirit. Isaac was the son of promise. Abraham and Sarah tried to rush God's program And he went into Hagar, a servant of Sarah, and she bore him a son named Ishmael. But God doesn't acknowledge Ishmael. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, Took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood uh, we have, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. I like the way the King James translates verse 8 because I believe it communicates what Abraham actually said and what he believed. Genesis 22, verse 8, and the King James says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. 2,000 years later, John the Baptist shows up, and he introduces Jesus Christ to the world in John 1, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the first time, and if you know anything about the hermeneutical law of first mention, anywhere in the Bible where a major concept appears first, study that passage, it becomes the prototype for every other time that concept appears in the Bible. Interesting. Genesis what twenty two five six, the first time the word worship appears in the Bible. It's not associated with singing, it's associated with sacrifice. Because that's what worship really is. But here, it's interesting that the first time the word lamb appears in the new testament it answers the question of the first time the word lamb appears in the old testament where is the lamb for the offering behold the lamb of god interesting isn't it go back to genesis 22 let's look at verse 9 then they came to the place of which god had told him and abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid, uh, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Jireh. For it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This tells me that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. The prophecy of God sending his only begotten son who would be the lamb who would die on the very mount. Mount Moriah is Calvary. You probably knew that, but maybe some of you didn't. Mount Moriah is Calvary. The very place where 2,000 years later another father would offer his only begotten son whom he loved on that very spot. Guys, we are being told that Abraham knew the gospel. Once again, John 8, 56, Your father Abraham, Jesus, had rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Galatians 3, 8, And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham. So Abraham knew the gospel. That's obvious. But how exactly? That brings us to our second question for the morning. How and when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, some believe it was when God brought him outside in Genesis 15 and said to him in verse 5, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. There are those who say that, no, what actually what God is saying is he's not saying to Abraham to literally count the stars in the heavens. He was telling Abraham to set them in order. That's the idea in the Hebrew, to set the stars in order or in other words God was telling him to read the order of the constellations for they tell the story of redemption they tell the story of the gospel the psalmist said in psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God right and the greatest way God is glorified is through the work of redemption and it could be guys that God took Abram outside, showed him these constellations, and used them to preach the gospel to him. And I believe that Abram then realized what God meant when he promised him so many descendants, they wouldn't be able to be numbered. And how that in him, yes, in Abram, but he understood. Through him, another would come, a descendant, uh, Messiah. We know him as Messiah Jesus. And that in him, Abraham's descendant, Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Because again, he would be the Savior of all mankind. Guys, Abram had the gospel preached to him. He understood the story of redemption that God would send a Redeemer, and that Redeemer would be one of Abram's own descendants. And that through this Redeemer, people from all over the world would become part of Abram's descendants and members of the family of God, all by faith. So God preached the gospel to Abraham. But is it reasonable for us to really think that he used the stars to do it? Let's go back to Genesis 1, which um, verse 14, which is the fourth day of creation. Genesis 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Now, while it is true that since the beginning of time, man has used the sun, moon, and stars to determine the time of day and the seasons of the year. In fact, the Jews could look at the moon and tell you basically what day of the month it was and be pretty accurate because they were on a lunar calendar and they knew the stages of the, of the moon. And so, guys, for many centuries, man used the sun, moon, and stars to determine the time of day, the seasons of the year, even to navigate with. But the Hebrew in Genesis 1.14 gives us further insight into why God created the sun, moon, and I'm thinking primarily for this context, the stars. The Hebrew word for seasons is moed, which is translated feasts in Leviticus 23, verses 2 and 3. Hebrew scholars point out that the most accurate translation of the Hebrew word moed is divine appointment, divine appointment. In other words, part of the purpose of these heavenly bodies was to announce the coming each year of the feasts of God, which were, listen, divine appointments where he and his people connected in a very special way through these feasts. The seven feasts of Moses outlined in Leviticus 23 were divine appointments, Um, Not only as yearly feasts, but feasts that commemorated significant events in their past, such as with Passover, which commemorated their exodus from Egypt. Or as with the Feast of Tabernacles, which served to remind them of the way God so faithfully took care of his people during their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Then once they entered the Promised Land, how he provided an abundant harvest of good things to eat every fall which is why the feast of tabernacles is also called the feast of ingathering in the sense of the feast where the harvest is gathered in now as new testament christians we know these feasts had a very important prophetic significance to them as well in that they prophesied the coming time when god would keep some very very special appointments with his people the first three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits, speak of Jesus' first coming. And the work and we did a whole series of the seven feasts of Israel, so if you're interested, you can go online and listen to it, because we wanted this each one in great detail, give you the background and so on and so forth. I'm just gonna mention them in passing. The first three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits speak of Jesus' first coming, and the work of redemption he accomplished by dying for our sins and rising from the dead. The last three feasts, Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles, speak of his second coming and the work that he has yet to accomplish when he returns, which is the establishing of his kingdom upon the earth, a divine appointment that is getting very near indeed for him to fulfill. In the middle, you have the Feast of Pentecost, which signifies the time between Jesus' first and second coming, or what we call the Church Age. When God the Holy Spirit was sent to keep a special appointment that Jesus promised he'd keep in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. And he kept that appointment on the Feast of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out and came like a mighty rushing wind into the house where the disciples were uh, staying and praying, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Wonderful. That's great. You know that. However, Genesis 1.14 gives us another reason why God, why God created the sun, moon, and stars. They would not only be used to mark the passing of time in the sense of days and months and seasons of the year, but listen, in verse 14, God said they would also be for signs. Signs. The Hebrew word for signs is oath, meaning beacons or signals and suggest that the stars especially were placed in the heavens by God to serve as beacons, beacons, to guide the people of earth in a particular direction. Of course, it begs the question, what direction? And for that matter, what did God want to signal or announce to the inhabitants of the earth through the stars? Well, today in our culture, many believe the stars exist as astrological signs to announce important events or to simply predict a person's future. Astrology is divination. It's fortune-telling. And that is expressly forbidden by God in his word. I'll give you a couple examples. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12. Isaiah 7, verses 12 to 14. Many other places. uh, Forbids us as God's people from practicing divination. Astrology is divination. Stay away from it. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something called the Maseroth. The Maseroth. Let me just say this. We know that Satan is a counterfeiter. Of God's truth. And so many see the zodiac is a satanic counterfeit of the Hebrew Maseroth. What is the Maseroth? Well the precise meaning of the word is uncertain but its context from scripture has something to do with the constellations. I won't have you turn to it you can write it down to look it up later. Job 38 verses 31 and 2 God is talking to Job. He said can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? He's talking about the constellations. There are many who believe that the stars, and in particular the constellations, were placed in the heavens by God to point to and announce to the people of earth the gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. So when we say that God preached the gospel to Abraham, Many believe it was that he took him outside, Genesis 15, showed him the stars and told him to read the stars in order, in the order God had established them. Many believe it was through the Maseroth that God preached the gospel to Abraham. Some actually call the Maseroth the gospel in the stars. Now, the late, or early, depending on how you look at it, The late D. James Kennedy writes on this subject using Genesis 1 verse 14 as kind of a launching point when it says God made the stars for signs. I thought this was fascinating. I'll read it to you. He said, and I quote, a sign is something which proclaims a message. What is the message proclaimed by the stars? I'd like to talk to you about what might be called the gospel in the stars. We are told in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Kennedy goes on, God gave uh, to all of the world a proclamation of the gospel in the stars. A picture is worth a thousand words, we are told. And God has indeed painted the sky and made it a picture gallery replete with the glories of his redemption. There exists in the writings of virtually all civilized nations a description of the major stars in the heavens, something which might be called the constellations of the zodiac or the signs of the zodiac, which are which there are 12. If you go back in time to Rome or beyond that to Greece or before that to Egypt or to Persia or Assyria or Babylon, regardless of how far back you go, there is a remarkable phenomenon. All nations had the same 12 signs representing the same 12 things placed in the same exact order. Archaeologists, historians, antiquarians have searched the dustiest libraries, uncovered the oldest tablets, ciphered the most difficult hieroglyphics, and have failed to discover how it is that all over the world the same signs exist. Remarkably, the stars in the heavens which represent those 12 signs bear absolutely no resemblance to the pictures or the signs themselves. For example, what we call the Big Dipper has been called Ursa Major, the great bear. One thing that it it does not look like is a great bear. Neither do any of the other signs look like what they are supposed to represent. Where did their names come from? The Bible tells us that God has named all the stars and the hosts of heaven that he numbered them, ordered them, and set them in the firmament to be signs. The original meaning was corrupted into something which was demonic. Yeah, Maseroth to Zodiac, okay? So the original meaning was corrupted into something which was demonic, something which was satanic, something which was a counterfeit, something which uh, has given birth to what is known as modern astrology, which the Bible repeatedly condemns and warns Christians against. The corruption began in Babylon with the Tower of Babel. It is well that you have nothing to do with modern modern astrology whatsoever because of its corruption and satanic aspects. But in order that you might appreciate what God has done, let us look briefly at a few pictures of the Zodiac, as it's a ripoff of the Maseroth, right? He said the word Zodiac is thought to mean a circle of animals. Although some linguists say that it comes from an ancient Hebrew word meaning a path or step, that it actually is displaying the way of salvation. Now, I'm not going to read the whole article. You can find it online. I just want to weigh your appetite to this in case you're interested, okay? Let me just go through a few of these. Uh, The Maseroth, today the Zodiac, starts with Virgo. A picture of a woman, Kennedy says, you can look at the stars in Virgo until you are green in, your, in the face, and you would never look, it would never look like a woman. But the picture which has gone with them down through the ages in every nation in the world is a picture of a woman. This woman is clearly identified as a virgin. Virgo means virgin in Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and Arabic. So the first thing we see is the emphasis upon the virginity of this woman. The next sign is coma. Coma means the desired or longed for one. It's a picture of a woman with a child in her lap. The book of Haggai tells us the desire of all nations shall come. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations who was to come. The fourth sign is crux. Kennedy says crux is the southern cross. This is one constellation which looks like that for which it was named because it consists of four stars placed very clearly in the shape of a cross as if God didn't want us to miss it. In Hebrew, it is called Adam, which means cutting off. Christ is that one who was cut off out of the land of the living, out of the land of the living for our sins. The last sign is Leo. Kennedy says, finally, we come to Leo, the lion a picture of Christ who was the lion of the tribe of Judah coming again. Uh, he is coming this time not in humiliation, but in great power and glory. The lion's claws in this picture, that is, represents this Leo, the lion's claws are right over Hydra the serpent, who he is about to finally and totally destroy. Dr. Kennedy finishes by saying, The art gallery of God painted in the sky is a great and glorious picture. All ancient traditions, all ancient uh, mythologies, all pagan religions are all nothing more than the corruption of the ancient gospel God gave to Adam and written in the celestial sky for all the world to see. How glorious is that whether we talk about the special revelation God has given to us in his word or the general revelation which he has given to us in nature. The story is always the same. The seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. At last there came that one who was born of a woman, a virgin, who came to die and rise again, that we might live forever. He said, I hope that as you go out on a given evening uh, and look up at the glories of the starry skies, you will be more impressed than ever with the greatness and wonder of our God and the majesty of his grace and mercy, end quote. After kind of going through that and kind of wetting your appetite, I'm not, I don't think you're ever going to read the first four verses of Psalm 19 ever the same again. Let me read them to you. We'll close. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The creation declares in a universal language to all people the glory of God. And now I believe we can see the gospel of God. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the Son. You know, I wanted to go through that this morning because I think we read our Bibles too quickly, loosely. We don't really focus uh, or meditate on some of these things enough where maybe God gives us some new insights. Let me ask you this because we ran out of time today. I'm going to open up next week with just a little something, a little holdover. i not going to spend any more time on this, really. But let me ask you this. How many of you, when you come in your Bibles to a genealogy, you just skip down to the end and just keep reading? I do. And we all do it, right? Why? Because they're boring. They're boring. Do you know that God has placed in one genealogy that I know of probably many others the gospel of his son you breeze right over that you wouldn't even know it was there I'll start next week's message by showing you what I'm talking about and maybe we'll get a deeper appreciation for what Jesus said every jot every tittle we would say every dot of the i and cross of the t is there for a reason and man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen? Amen? Come on back next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is awesome. And we have no, we're just scratching the surface. I think it's going to take eternity to fully plumb the depths of your word. And we thank you. We ask you, Lord, to keep blessing these studies in your word. And going forward, give us a voracious hunger for your word. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.